freedom 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 over fame freedom over cycle stays the same welcome first of all welcome this is unsolicited perspectives i am your host bruce anthony thank you for listening and watching wherever you get your podcast and video podcasts subscribe share like comment and rate us you can find us on instagram youtube and twitch at unsolicited underscore perspectives on twitter and tiktok at unsolicited underscore per watch us live every thursday night 7 30 p.m eastern on youtube and twitch our audience continues to grow with each and every episode and i humbly thank you on today's episode, I'll be interviewing Sue Humphrey. She's an author, an Olympic coach, and whether she realizes it or not, a women's rights activist. But first things first. So as I said, I'm going to be interviewing Sue Humphrey. She's the author of I Want to Run, the Olympic Development Training and Nutritional Guide for Young and Teen Track Runners, ages 10 to 18. You can get that on Amazon.com. If you're watching on YouTube, we're going to put that link down in the description. Um, she's also been an Olympic coach. She's worked with Will Chamberlain, Jackie Jerner, Kersey, Flo Jo. Uh, she's, she started track and field at universities, she was an athlete before Title IX and a coach at the beginning and throughout Title IX. What she has to say about the history of women's sports is going to be fascinating. And I am looking forward to learning a lot about her life. And I feel like when you hear about her life from athlete to coach in everything in between, you're going to be really fascinated at the life that she's lived. So without further ado, let's get the show on the road and get started with this interview. Welcome. I'm here with Sue Humphrey. She's an Olympic coach, an author, and I'm going to say a woman's advocate. Sue, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate this. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really have been looking forward to this. Oh, I'm glad you were looking forward to it because I was as well. <laughs> Let's get started. You wrote a book and is I Want to Run, the Olympic Development Training and Nutritional Guide for Young and Teen Track Runners ages 10 to 8. What is your hope that the readers will take away from it? And what made you write this book? Okay, well, it's, it's for teen, 10 to 18. In other words... Youngsters uh, in middle school, high school, first wanting to get started. And so what I did is I put together uh, kind of a, not a beginner's guide, if you will. And so it's for parents, For it's written for a middle school uh, audience as to the different events in track and field, the history of track and field a little bit. Um, also, what I consider the off-the-track activities as far as nutrition, sleep, if you want to get a college scholarship, what are some of the academic requirements that you're going to need to look at. So it's kind of a cross-section uh, beginning novel, a beginning guide, if you will, for someone that wants to get used, get involved in track and field. Wow. So that's uh, so it's kind of it's a prep book. Correct. Yes, it's yeah. a prank. So it's I remember back. <laughs> you know, it's not real heavy, but I do give sample workouts and mm -hmm. um, ideas for coaches or for the kids who want to get started. So what made you write this book? I guess I have a feeling I'm my paying job over the years has been as a middle school teacher or administrator. Mm -hmm. And so I've always worked with kids and I've always wanted to be sure that they're set and have a prepared life ready for whatever route they choose, you know, as a career and to help youngsters guide them along the way. And I think that's a big thing nowadays is our youngsters are not in all ways getting the best guidance, if you will. And mm -hmm. so this was like a beginning novel for them. In other words, a beginning starting 
uh, guide because so many times you look at the track and field books, which are printed. There are not a lot of them. And so uh, this is like, well, how do I get started? And I think, you know, getting a good base and getting a good start is important, obviously. And so I wanted to give them the good framework to get started with. That That's so very, very important. I'll tell you from my own personal experience, I was a basketball player. Uh, how good of a basketball player I was is, is disputed or debated between my friends, uh, me and my family. Uh, but one of the things that uh, in middle school in preparation for high school, because they, they could tell in middle school that I was going to be on the varsity, basically my freshman or sophomore year was that the track and field coach pulled me aside and said, you need to learn how to run and jump properly. And I was like, well, what do you mean? I just run and jump. And he was, he was like, no, you, there's a technique to running and you're not jumping, right? Some people are one foot jumpers. Some people are two uh, feet jumpers. Um, and it's like, you're jumping off the wrong leg. So it, that's interesting because the basis is if you want to succeed in athletics in high school and beyond, you do need that, that base. Right. And, you know, I work with younger kids, meaning middle school, high school kids nowadays. And so many of them, like you say, have no idea how to run or, you know, I'm surprised they get from point A to point B sometimes with it. And so we break it down and try to get them that good foundation so that the high school coaches can then build on it and the college coaches can build even further. Because many times I'll talk to the uh, college coaches and they're like, oh, we're spending a year or so breaking down all their bad habits. Yeah. Well, I'd rather the kid go to college without the bad habits or as many mm -hmm. bad habits so they can again progress. So you've worked with middle school kids. But you've also worked for some big names in the Olympics. You've worked with Will Chamberlain, Jackie Joyner Kersey, Flores Griffin Joyner. I mean, I have so many questions just from those three names. But what was that experience like working with them and being a part of the Olympics? Well, they were twofold. The uh, working with Wilt and Jackie and Flojo, those all came before the Olympic experience for me. <laughs> Okay. Um, actually, I met Jackie when she was high school student. We uh, mm. through USA Track and Field, we would host junior elite camps mm -hmm. at Colorado Springs, which is where the Olympic Training Center is. And we would bring in high school elite high school athletes and their high school coaches, again, trying to help them and teach them the right way to do things so that as they advanced, they were ready to go. And so I met Jackie that way. And we got along and, uh, you know, she she's notorious for not liking the high jump, which she will readily admit. And so uh, Bob Kersey, her coach slash husband, he uh, saw that we did have a good rapport back and forth. And so he would bring me in at various times of her career or of her season to work with her on high jump because mm. they would end up always <laughs> – batting heads as right. to what to do and jackie and i didn't bat heads as much so okay that, i was kind of the neutralizer i guess with that uh florence uh, before she became flojo was uh florence and she was part of the group uh and we were part of wilt's athletic club and that's where getting to work and meet wilt came in because he sponsored our team and hmm. so what I was working with a high jumper at the time, Colleen Sommer. And so she was one of the world's best high jumpers. And the team was maybe, oh, 10 or 12 of the elite athletes in the U.S. at that time. Most of them were from the UCLA, you know, Bob Kersey group there. But we were kind of the addition <laughs> to the group and uh, appreciated it. And Wilt would help and be there uh, as a motivator, as a supporter, um, he traveled with us, you know, so that was a very interesting experience to see him off the track and see how people react to him uh, when he's trying to just walk down the street. You know, mm. that was <laughs> very eye-opening, too. So uh, I'm going to 
sidetrack a little bit. I watched this uh, documentary. It had to be about a year about a year ago about Andre the Giant and the looks that he gets, the stares he gets, because he's just, just this massive, massive man. And I also watched a documentary uh, about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and he explained his relationship with Will Chamberlain. Both of them tall in stature, Will a little bit bigger, and the conf- not confrontations, but how people would approach him. So can you kind of explain a little bit about what that experience was like for Wilt off the track in just everyday life and how people approached him? Well, I know at meets, he would usually sit down or like at UCLA, there's a wall uh, between the track and the stands. And we would usually be down at the end by high jump because that's what we were watching at the time. And he would sit against the wall so that unless you really were looking for him around the wall, you wouldn't see him there. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know one time uh, somebody came up to him and called him Bill Russell, and oh. he got very upset about yeah, that. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that person left pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> I know one time we were in New York, and he was walking down the street just to the hotel. And this, uh, I came up to about the top of his legs. So I was at his belt buckle, and um, this guy just kind of started coming up and kind of being a pest and, you know, Hey, Wills or Hey, Mr. Chamberlain and just kind of harassing him. Mm-hmm. And the guy was not that big. I mean, he maybe was five, 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 four or something like that. And Will kept saying, Hey man, leave me alone. Hey man, get away. And, and this guy just kept being a pest. And finally, I guess he got the message and left, but uh, you know, it, it was very interesting watching People's reaction to him, whether it be, oh, there he is, or even on the airplane, watching the stewardesses. That yeah. was quite interesting because they tracked him down. So, you know, they would, uh, he told us, he said, leave the plane last. So we stayed on the plane. Uh, it was L.A. to New York. So it was one of the big planes. And he said, just stay on and then we'll get off at the end. Well, we got off and had to walk through the airport and go to baggage claim and do all of that, you know. Well, these two or three stewardesses, I remember, were quite uh, eager to find where we were going and to stay with (laughs) us. So that was pretty obnoxious uh, with it. So I could see where these bigger basketball players and stuff, It, you know, it's not always their fault that maybe there's rudeness involved or uh, negative reactions because the public is not always that polite definitely yeah yeah well you, when you're in the public eye you lose your sense of privacy right. but at the same time people can be respectful of your privacy right um so so i'm going to detour again working with olympic athletes and then working with middle school kids it's a dramatic difference in ability um i once coached and I coached different grade levels and I found myself not, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be a good coach because I didn't have the patience for people that didn't have uh, a, a good skill set. I didn't have the patience to teach the basics. I wanted to get to the advanced stuff. How do you do that transition? How do you go from working with Olympic athletes to working with middle school kids? Obviously you love the kids because you're a teacher and administrator. So I'm sure that love for the kids helps with having that patience? Yes, uh, yes, definitely. You know, working with younger kids gives you patience, that's for sure. (laughs) Um, I think you hit the nail on the head kind of when you said you were looking, you didn't want to have the uh, beginner athlete that didn't have the skills to begin with. And Mm -hmm. to me, in, in my history, I was not a very good athlete physically. I played Mm -hmm. softball in middle school and in high school. And, and then back then, and we'll, I know, get to this with the title nine, you know, there weren't a lot of opportunities for girls. Right. And so um, I went into the coaching at 15, you know, as to working mm. with kids, obviously younger than me, but you know, that young as to at least being an organizer, I'm not claiming I knew everything at that time but I had good people around me. And so because I was not that good of a physical athlete, I had to learn these events from ground zero. 
Mm. I had to learn the very basics. I had to learn, you know, where does your hand go? Where does the leg go? Why does it go there? And I think that has helped me over the years in being able to explain basic techniques uh, to to the younger athlete or to the beginning athlete. Now, ironically, working with Olympic level athletes is a little different. But again, every year we kind of go back to the basics at the beginning Mm-hmm. and refresh and remember because sometimes we cruise through that a little too fast and then we need to go back and rebuild that uh, muscle memory or the technical base um obviously they're the olympic athletes you you would think they're a lot different but in a way they're not that different in that they're human beings they have emotions yeah. you know Certain things bother them. Obviously, things that bother an Olympic athlete are different than bother a 12-year-old. So, you know, you have to work with situations as they arise. But um, I think just dealing with people is the biggest and being patient. I mean, I know the patience that I have in working with some of my mid-20-year-olds is far more than working with some of my younger kids at times. So it, it just really depends on the individual. Once again, I'm a detour. Do you think that's because of the power dynamic as you're dealing with kids, you're an older adult, so it's, it's easier to have them just follow your lead as opposed to an, an older person uh, and they're set in their ways and they're more complicated because that power dynamic isn't quite there. I'm not talking in the power dynamic as in, it's abusive. I'm talking just no, as no. far as age and, and kids being respectful for the, to the elders, at least certain generations. I was going to say back in the day, <laughs> back in the day, back in the back day, in the day, there was a respect for the adult. Uh, nowadays, it's not quite as common. Uh, initially, it's there once you develop a rapport with the, the student, but it's not an automatic the way it was 10, 20 years ago. That's Mm. definitely different. Um, Again, like you say, though, as they get older, they uh, feel they know everything, as we did when we were that age. And, um, you know, so sometimes there is, you know, I know this, leave me alone type of idea. And so then you have to, again, that's where patients step back, wait till they have an issue or fall on their face and then say, okay, now you're ready to regroup. Let's move (laughs) ahead now. (laughs) I like that. So you brought it up and I know you've started, as you said, you started your athletic career before title nine and you've worked all the way through title nine for those people out there that don't understand what title nine is. Can you explain it to them? And can you explain the differences in athletics for women before and after title nine? Well, before title nine, uh, females in high school had play days where we could go and uh, play little group games and things like that on Saturdays. We had no uh, or very limited interscholastic sports. As I remember in high school, we had golf, badminton, and tennis. And if you didn't have one of those sports, which again were more of a higher economic sport, um, you went to the little play days on Saturdays, and that was it. It was very... Uh, parks and recreation, play and game type of thing. There was no real structure and no working ahead. There were no high school programs of uh, working with uh, other states and things like that, except for those three uh, sports. There were no college scholarships or anything like that. So to be in athletics, it was more to be, you wanted to be in recreation, I guess, at that time. Uh, Then when Title IX came in, of course, it took a 180 because now all of a sudden everybody has to have these programs by law. And it went from zero to, you know, 100 in a millisecond. And it wasn't always the best transition, uh, very definitely. I mean, there was um, high school programs that suddenly came in for girls, let's say, in track and field. The coaches were not ready for it. The coaches were not that knowledgeable of it. There was a lot of peer pressure uh, put on the students because before that, 
we had developed and swimming and track and field pretty much have worked together over the years with this, where we had a club system. Mm-hmm. In other words, through the AAU or now with USA track and field or USA swimming, there's club sports where you can compete against um, athletes within your own area, your region, state, internationally, and so on, and earn your scholarships that way. Back in the 70s, when the high school programs came in, all of a sudden there was pressure put on these top athletes who had been doing well in the club to suddenly leave the club training and become a high school athlete. Mm. Well, the training was night and day difference, and the opportunities were totally different. But the peer pressure put on the students was pretty intense by the teachers slash coaches at the high schools and by their friends. And so this is what I ran into mostly uh, in Arizona at the time was – having an athlete that we had worked with and developed through our AAU program from maybe age nine or 10 up to 14 or 15. And she would been doing well, competing uh, nationally, setting records maybe nationally and doing very well. And all of a sudden she wants to leave and go to a program that was nothing and hadn't been started. And the coach wasn't that, into it. And I'm like, you know, you're giving away any future possibility of a college scholarship, which is now becoming an opportunity because the training was night and day difference and swimming was this way too. So we took our, our top club athletes and it was very rough there for a while because it was a battle between the club coach and the high school coach and the club program and the high school programs and so on. So that was a problem when Title IX came in. Uh, Mm -hmm. Obviously, the opportunities provided were above and beyond anything we'd had, you know, Mm -hmm. because we didn't have any scholarships. And now all of a sudden there are scholarships, there's opportunities available. And of course, the families were all involved with that and excited and rightly so, you know, because things that the guys just took for granted as far as opportunities, you know, now the the female counterpart had it too. So it kind of seems like what you're describing is the reverse, uh, what basketball and AAU for high school kids are now, whereas a lot of the kids are are either the AAU team is their, their most important team and the high school team. If it's their local high school that they actually go to and not to a private school is not as important. Um, so that's interesting. I, so from what I'm gathering that, that first initial wave of females that, uh, were participating in athletics when title nine first started, there may have been some lost talent through that transition. Very definitely. Or interruption in training. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, if you have been training on one level and and rising up, there was definitely you put yourself in neutral there for Mm -hmm. a year or two. If you even then continued, you know, and that was the other thing as to, um, again, peer pressure, as we all know, is very powerful. And so depending on the student, depending on her goals, her stability, you know, that became an uh, integral part of decision-making too. So with time period, because obviously now when we look at the back end of Title IX and, and we have women's soccer, right? The, the women's soccer team is better than the men's. Like the WNBA is a huge thing now. What was that time period where it all caught up? And it was a smoother transition where there wasn't a loss of talent anymore that the high schools caught up with the clubs or maybe the clubs were just phased out and were all integrated into the, the high schools and those coaches left the clubs. It, it, so, so what was, what was that time period and what exactly happened to make it a smoother transition in later years? Well, I don't even know if we could say it's a smooth transition today, but okay. it's a transition. Um, Well, in the 70s, 
and 80s, it was rocky uh, because, again, the, the college programs were developing and they were looking for good athletes, and rightly mm -hmm. so. And we would look because then I got involved uh, in the college scene at Arizona State. So now all of a sudden I'm a club coach and now I'm a college coach. So I'm looking for the best talent because I want my program's uh, reputation and re uh, results to be good. Mm -hmm. So I'm not looking at just the high school talent. I'm looking at the club talent, too, and bringing athletes in. So that went from the 80s to, you know, let's say 80s and 90s. Uh, in the 2000s, then the clubs started to fade away a little bit because the high school program was gaining. The uh, coaches were taking much more seriously the coaching and learning and coaches education programs uh, were blooming all over the place. And so the, the high school coach nowadays, the straight one that wants to be a high school coach is definitely much stronger and much better trained than they were 20 years ago. Now, there's still some high school coaches who are football coaches that are getting a stipend in uh, the spring, and that's why they're there, but that's a minority, uh, hopefully. So the high school programs that I've been uh, involved with or seeing for the most part now are stronger, much stronger on training and education and you know, doing the right thing, shall we say, and getting your athlete ready for college. Um, so the, and I can't speak for swimming as much, but I think the, um, in track, definitely the club programs have faded in some regional areas here uh, way. Like I'm in Texas now and the club programs are very minimal compared to what I had in Arizona back in the 70s and 80s. So, you know, but I'm still dealing with high school coaches nowadays. In fact, this weekend, uh, you know, is working with, I do private lessons. So I have individual athletes from maybe 10 different high schools. And some of the college, some of the high school coaches are fantastic and communicate back and forth and are just awesome to work with. And then others, not so much, you yeah. know, because now we get into the ego thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I've told parents, I'm not in it for the ego. I've been there, done that. I want the kid to have a good experience and to be successful. Uh, last year, I had a young lady who had a sprint coach and a jump coach and a strength coach, you know. And I'm like, yeah, she was kind of diversified there. Yeah. and. Uh, there was a little issue with the sprint coach and me as to telling her what to do with the meets. And so it, it got down to where I said to the uh, parent, because apparently the sprint coach was bad mouthing me to the athlete. And I didn't know that. And then I find out about it later. And so I'm like, Hey mom, you know, I'm going to step back because I don't want your daughter to be pulled this way. Because right. if she's pulled this way, the performance is going to matter and or be affected. And I'm not there for that. Well, the mom fired the sprint coach and kept me. <laughs> the athlete was rated number one in the nation, her event, and made the world team. So, you know, it worked out well. But then I also have stories where it didn't always work out well, and I was left just cheering. So, uh -huh. you know, it depends on the individual, definitely. So, Sue, you talked about coaching and having issues with other coaches. And I have to ask you a question. What is it like for you in a quote unquote man's world of coaching? It's a struggle at times and it's wonderful at times. And as I mentioned with the athlete, it's very individual. So likewise, with your peer coach, male or female, it's individual. There are some male coaches that are like big brothers to me or fathers and, and have just been awesome and helped me, mentor me through my career. 
Uh, there's other ones that because I'm a woman, uh, I've been tossed aside. I've been called the most stubborn bee this individual ever yeah. heard of or ever dealt with. And that I was called uh, by a college coach. So it, it varies, you know, it, it just varies back and forth. And I just know where my heart is and my passion and my motives. And I have to go with that. So the reason why I said you're an activist is because you also started, you founded the women's track and field program at Arizona state. Yes. So can you tell me a little bit about how that got started? I know you said you were coaching in the clubs mm -hmm. and then you, you, you moved towards uh, the college. So I'm going to assume that this was the first college or had you already been working at other colleges and then you went to Arizona State. How did that all come about? Okay. Well, I was in Phoenix and I had gone to Arizona State. That was That's my school and where I graduated and everything else. Uh, so I was teaching in Scottsdale, which is a suburb of Phoenix, that whole metropolitan area. And uh, again, Title IX came in 73, 74, you know, and uh, I was very fortunate that uh, one of my parents of one of my athletes I've been working with apparently knew the athletic director at ASU. And I guess they were talking or something And this uh, father, ironically, the father said, well, call Sue. She, you know, they were looking for a female, mm -hmm. obviously, because all of a sudden now you have to have a female. Mm -hmm. And so the athletic director called, uh, offered me the assistant track coach, women's track coach. It was part time. So I had to teach all day, full time teacher and then drive over to the university in the afternoon, have practice and so on. And um, though what they did economically, and I understand this, you know, as I look back that the head women's coach position was tied in with the men's assistant track position. So the assistant men's coach now all of a sudden became the head women's track coach too. So he now suddenly had two titles one job or, you know, one position, two different titles. Mm -hmm. And that way the university had a full-time women's head coach. Okay. Okay. okay? Mm -hmm. uh, but he was a male. So I come over as the female in the afternoon and uh, he was real good cooperative, but a nice guy to work with and so on. But he had some personal issues and unfortunately, the second year we were into the production of the team there, second year, he uh, had to take a medical leave um, in the like October. All of a okay. sudden, he was out of commission. And so the athletic director's like, okay, well, we're not going to bring anybody in mid-year, so you're, it's you. And so uh, luckily, I had a, a very good manager and... Um, between the two of us and figuring everything out, we we did, and the team did very well, won conference, and uh, I was, so in the afternoons, we would have practice, and then I would have to, after school, I mean, after practice, I would have the equipment order, the recruiting, because again, at that time, recruiting for the women was done just by letters and by phone calls. Mm. There were no visits, uh, none of the luxuries that we have nowadays for uh, recruiting. You kind of went based on the marks and the rapport you had over the phone. So I had that and then workouts and everything. So my job basically went, you know, from maybe four o'clock in the afternoon to whenever I was done in the evening and then go back to school the next morning. <laughs> so it, it went from a part-time job to a full-time job. Exactly. For $4,000. Uh, so, uh, you know, you're not going to get rich coaching college, <laughs> but uh, what, when, maybe not then now, now certain ones, they're making yeah. big bucks, but I'll tell you some more as we go on. So that was at ASU. And so again, at the end of that year, which would have been my second year there, uh, obviously now they're going to hire somebody to take this coach's position who had to take the medical leave. Mm -hmm. Well, the athletic, I interviewed and I knew that, you know, it's probably a far shot just because I was younger 
uh, and a female, but I also knew that we had taken the team from basically nothing to third, fourth in the nation. And so obviously we had done something right. Uh, so why, why wouldn't, okay, I'm trying to understand one, I know you, I know you said that the men's assistant coach had to, had to become the woman's coach from a, from a standpoint that it had to be a full-time job, mm -hmm. but why did it have to be a man? Why couldn't it be a woman? This goes back to the original question from the beginning of this right. segment, you know, Dylan and, and a quote unquote, ladies and gentlemen, I'm literally, if you're listening to the audio, I'm, I'm putting up the quotations, quote unquote, man's world. I'm not saying it's a man's world. Okay. I'm not saying that I'm saying the perception. <laughs> okay. Sue will. I'm saying the perception was, but Sue is confirming that it was, I don't understand why they, why you had to interview. If you had that type of success, one, please finish your story and tell me what ended up happening. But, but the fact that you had to interview kind of annoys me a little bit and I'm sure annoyed you. Well, it was, it was rough because I agree with you. You know, I thought, okay, I'm doing a good job and we're being successful. Why bring in a new person who maybe will not keep the continuity going? Uh, well, I was told that this individual got the job because it involved coaching male athletes. So the athletic director's rationale to me on why I did not get the job was that the coach they brought in was a male who had coached male athletes before. I said, okay, has he ever coached women before? No, no. And the AD blatantly, you know, he was not hiding that at all. I said, so I can't coach men, but I can coach women. And this guy can coach men, but not women. And he gets the job. Hmm. And that was the rationale. Now, in looking back, I think the head coach at that time was very uh, much a male chauvinist. And so I'm sure he had something to say about it, too. Mm -hmm. But the rationale I was given was I was not uh, I did not get the job because I'd never coached men before. And so ironically, as we worked through the next few years, a lot of the male jumpers seeing the success that we were having on the women's side started to come over after their practice <laughs> was over and watch and ask if they could kind of work with us. And of course I had to, that was rough because I didn't want to get in trouble, if you will, or get on the bad side of my peers with the male coaching staff. So it, it got to be a little frazzled at times, but the male jumpers, male high jumpers were coming over to work with us. So obviously it, I could coach men. <laughs> I, it's so funny how I, I said something uh, in one of my previous podcasts, as far as education is concerned, you know, kids don't know the difference of gender and race and things like that. It's something that's taught as they get older and then you start to see these segregations. But but when you get into college, and the reason why they say colleges are so liberal, but it's, it's about experiencing something outside of where you come from. And you see, I've never really interacted with this person. I've never seen a person like this. Wow, I didn't know they had that capability. So that you could have had these students these male track and fields from small towns where, where maybe, as you said, the high school program wasn't that great and they didn't see female athletes like this. And then they get to college and they see the female athletes are just, or maybe more passionate than they are, uh, more disciplined than they are. And they decide to learn from it. But the older men stuck in their ways and, and how was that dynamic with the new coach that uh, that took over from the previous <laughs> coach? <laughs> it did not go very well. And um, mostly because of certain things that were happening off the track. Um, he was very, he didn't share a lot of information as far as what was happening with the team or the workouts or you know, things. And so I don't know, cause I went into it. I thought I, I felt I went into it. Okay. We've got to work together. Mm -hmm. I had recruited that team. So it was basically athletes I had brought to ASU 
Mm-hmm. And so I wanted them to be successful, obviously. And like, I remember one of the first meetings I had with him, he went down a roster and he was like, well, what about this athlete? You know, we were talking about who is recruiting. And this was in 77. So the 76 Olympics had just happened. And there was a high school hurdler, a female high school hurdler on the 76 Olympic team. And so he's like, oh, we got to get her. We got to get her. I said, coach, she arrives next week. I've already signed her. <laughs> so, um, you know, and the team that I had recruited was awesome. They ended up, again, third and fourth in the nation, winning the national title four by one, mm. uh, you know, all Americans. So he got a full-fledged team walking in there. Now, whether that was a problem and he – ego, whatever, I don't know. But, and this is all keep in mind in the late seventies, this is before the, um, the safe sports stuff and the women's rights and, uh, just, I'm trying to think the sexual harassment stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that was going on off the track. And so I, I couldn't deal with that. I, I, it just, ate me up basically because these kids were being used. And um, so I ended up resigning there in 1981 because by staying there, I was condoning what was happening and I, I couldn't, I just couldn't anymore. And so then I went over uh, a kind of joke about midlife crisis at age 30, but it was kind <laughs> of, so I went over to Long Beach and um, again, you talk about a good male coach uh, over there, Long Beach state. And he uh, welcomed me, you know, to help with the team. Now, of course it was a volunteer. So mm-hmm. I had to teach full time again. Yeah. Uh, I worked in a gas station at night. Jesus. <laughs> that's when I Wilt was there and that's when we got involved with Wilt's uh, athletic club so he helped me some financially you that's know nice. so the transition was pretty smooth actually there wow and then, then come to Texas in 84 so okay. I'm here <laughs> uh, do you, this is a personal question and you don't have to answer this do you have a bad taste in your mouth with your experience with ASU or is it a, a proud is it bittersweet? It's bittersweet only against that individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, the athletic director, the women's athletic director, when I resigned and gave her my letter, she's like, can't you get the girls to talk or can't we do something to get the situation fixed? And I said, I've been trying the girls won't talk. They're afraid they'll lose their scholarship. I even talked to one of the mothers of a young lady who was on a full ride, who was not that good athletically. I mean, she was a nice kid, good student, Mm -hmm. but not somebody that was full ride material at that time. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately her mother said, we're not going to rock the boat because she's the first one in college. She's graduating in a year. And, you know, I thought, my gosh, you're kind of prostituting your child to get this college scholarship. So it's bittersweet against the situation, Mm -hmm. not against the school, not against the athletes or, you know, any of that. Have you kept in touch with any of those athletes from those teams from ASU? Yes, yes. I, I still see them, or again, through social media. Social and media. actually, ironically, last year at the USA Track and Field Convention, this young lady came up to me and said, you don't remember me, do you? And it was one of our long jumpers from that original ASU team. And she's now in Connecticut and coaching and doing a good job there. So it was really fun to see her again. I love that. I, I love that. Um, how can parents and coaches of girls and young women who are interested in competitive running best help them succeed? Well, I think as to letting the, the student, making sure the student is what is, this is their passion, not the parent passion, not the coach passion. You know, unfortunately we saw many years with the boys where, you know, the dads were reliving their, athletic dream or lack of 
through the kid. Well, we see that sometimes with the girls too, obviously. Mm. And so I think it's being sure that let the kid do what she wants to do or has passion to do at that time. Um, I think specializing too young has become an issue with, you know, like you mentioned AAU basketball, there's AAU volleyball. There's some of these kids, their schedule is unreal. Um, their day-to-day schedule between school and club practice and school practice. And, you know, it's unreal. And I'm afraid that they might not be ready or they might not want to continue in sport because they're just burned out from it. And that's a concern I have is looking ahead. When we look back at the stars of today in track, at least how many of them were stars when they were, high school or freshman high school, you know, it's kind of mixed. So I think is to support your kid, definitely. And I don't mean just financially, but, you know, there's a financial commitment, but also to be supportive of her dreams and what she wants to do. And if it might not be what you want her to do, um, you know, kind of go with the flow and see, or, you know, and to check out the people the coaches and the group or organization she's working with. Because nowadays, because of the gymnastics fiasco of the last few years with the um, harassment of the athletes and the abuse of the athletes, there are a lot of safeguards built in now that weren't five years ago even or 10 years ago. Uh, But there's still, unfortunately, individuals that are getting away with things that she shouldn't be. And they're using their position as a authority leader or power position in the team to take advantage of young girls and young guys. It's not just the girl thing. Yeah. And uh, we, through track and field, there's a program through the Olympic Committee actually called Safe Sport. And so we uh, have a program where you can anonymously call in and report someone and they investigate it. And some of the names that come back as people that are banned are shocking uh, to us because they're people that have been in the system and worked their way up quite high in the system. And you never knew that they were doing this off the track. Wow. Yeah. Scary. Wow. Well, that leads me to you're involved in a coaching summit. Can you tell me a little bit about the event and what attendees can learn and expect to learn? From the coaching summit? Yes, it's called the Gold Medal Coaching Summit, Gold Medal Coaches, and uh, .com. So the goldmedalcoaches.com. It's a free uh, summit this week that's happening. We have 30 different coaches speaking on a variety of events, uh, topics. So all the way from the sprints to the distance to the jumps to the throws. And you can pick and choose. Uh, which ones you want to listen to. If you, again, it's free initially. If you want to get access to the recordings, lifetime access, then you can buy a premium pass for $67. And that gives you all 30 sessions for life uh, in the cloud. So, you know, it's, it's a good thing. And again, it's, it's coaches that are elite level coaches and some college coaches and some top high school coaches. So I tried to pick a variety of individuals. So it's not just Olympic coaches, because a lot of times you can, if you're a high school coach and you listen to what the coach at the University of La La Land says, you know, that might not be something that you can take back to practice with your kids because of the difference of ability. Right. But if you're talking with another high school coach who's in the same kind of setup that you are and hear what he or she can develop, you're like, oh, okay, that's a possibility. So I tried to have a variety of uh, levels of speakers too. And it's oh. been pretty successful uh, this week. So we're excited about it. Ladies and gentlemen, check that out. Also, check out her book. Can you give me, I want to run. That's right. Put it up there on the screen for all those people that that are watching the video podcast. I want to run the Olympic Development Training and Nutritional Guide for Young and Teen Track Runners Ages 10 to 18 by Sue Humphrey. It's on Amazon. Amazon. Go get it. (laughs) Lastly, what's next for you in your career? What are you most excited about? 
I think now um, I'm leaning more toward continuing the coach's education part mm-hmm. and working with the young, younger, the developing athletes coming up. Uh, again, going back kind of a 360, I started out coaching young kids in a club setting and have been the whole gamut now kind of back that way. And again, trying to pass on the things that I've learned and the good and the bad and uh, help future coaches maybe not make the goofs I did, but learn from things that uh, were successful. So really you're talking about solidifying that foundation, right? Cause you're, you're attacking it from the coaches. Cause we, we talked about how, you know, some, some of these coaches for the clubs and the schools aren't really good. So you're building that continuously building that coaching tree mm-hmm. as right. well as helping the young kids. So you're really, you're laying the groundwork for the foundation for the future. I love that. Right. Right. That's the goal. Sue, I want to thank you again for joining me today. This has been a very insightful and interesting interview. Uh, you're very insightful and interesting person. Your life experiences is wow. Uh, that, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. So thank you again for joining us today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. No problem. Wow. I told Sue off camera uh, that her story is a story that should be told and she should start writing her book and that's a movie because from the beginning of her, of her athletic career all the way to her continuous coaching, she's been a part of so much and has interacted with so many people and has been there from the beginning, the before Title IX, the beginning of Title IX and through Title IX. And, and me and my toxic masculinity was thinking that women are, you know, it's all great now. Women have it. And she's telling me now, like, it's not, it's still not where it should be. And I identify with that. Uh, just being a black man in this country, I identify what she's saying with the struggle that women athletics are still having. They're not, they're not at the promised land yet. There's still work to be done and she's out there doing it. Get her book. Uh, the description, um, the, the link to her book on Amazon is in the description, as well as the link to her coaching summit is in the description on both the YouTube and wherever you get the audio podca- podcast, it's in the description. I hope I did her life service, that I did a good job representing how important she is um, just in American culture uh, and society and what she's gone through and the interactions she's, ha- she's had. I feel like there's another interview because there's more details. Like I said, we were off camera talking about some stuff and I was just like, wow, just some stuff you can't put on there um, because it's private, but just just her career and her life is remarkable. I hope that you got out of this interview what I got out of this interview. And I've had a lot of interviews with people that I'm extremely impressed with. And Sue Humphrey is right up there. She's right up there. This is one of the most impressive people that I've gotten to interview. Uh, And I'm very fortunate to have interviewed her. And once again, I thank her. And I hope you guys enjoyed the interview. Uh, But until next time, I'm a holler. Thank you for listening to Unsolicited Perspectives with Bruce Anthony. Please subscribe, like, comment, share, and donate. Donations help us keep giving you this free content each and every week. Until next time, Audi 5000. Peace.